Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Morris. Each week on this podcast, I'm joined by some of our fantastic news and analysis team here at Tez, as they share the stories they think should be in the spotlight. It's been a really busy week in the world of education, one that has seen three education secretaries and, of course, SATS results. Tez Senior Editor Gronya Hallahan joins me later to explore why it's so difficult to reconcile the pressure of SATS targets and the responsibility to keep children supported and happy through the experience. But first, reporters John Roberts and Callum Mason met earlier to catch up on this whirlwind week of education politics. Hello and welcome to the TES News Podcast. My name's John Roberts. I'm joined by my colleague, Callum Mason. Callum, hi. Hi, John. How are you doing? It's been a busy week, hasn't it? It's been quite a week. So we might have been expected to be talking about the, the first set of SATS results or teacher pay or any of the other issues that are ongoing in the sector. But at Tuesday night, the news cycle was turned upside down and we're now in a position where we're reflecting on a week where we've had three education secretaries in place at one stage, a department left with only one minister in the House of Lords and complete turmoil for schools and the education sector. And um, this all started on Tuesday night when Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid resigned over the Chris Pincher scandal and policy differences with the prime minister. And we idly wondered whether this might impact on education. There was some suggestion Nadim Zahawi might be one of the ministers considering his position. Should we take it up there on, on Tuesday night then? How did this how did this first start to unravel? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, there was two ministerial resignations and we were wondering, and I think a lot of people in education were wondering if Nadine Zahawi, the education secretary at the time, uh, would be the next to resign. Um, he did leave education, um, but not because he resigned. Obviously, he got promoted to being the chancellor, took Rishi Sunak's old job. Um, and then this sort of kick-started a, quite a, a series of reshuffles, I guess, didn't it? Um, so first of all, we got Michelle Donlan um, promoted from being a, a more junior minister in the DfE to being the Secretary of State for Education. That I think that happened on Tuesday night. I mean, it all comes into a blur now, but I think that's what happened. Absolutely. Um, I was there, when we just just before we sat down to do this, I was kind of thinking like, what day is it today? When did this all unravel? But yeah, so they were they went into Downing Street. It was quite striking, really, because we're kind of on alert that he might resign, and instead he's in Downing Street for an hour. Anyway, he emerges as Chancellor, as you say, Michelle, Michelle Donlan, who was the only minister, became Education Secretary. And so we, you know, you, and I know the key departures happened that night, and you wonder whether Boris Johnson has kind of seen off the worst of it. But, but very early the next day, the resignations started to, to really come in. And one of the very first was um, a significant one for us, which is um, the Children's Minister, Will Quince. And I, I think that was a significant one for two reasons. One, because of the role he has um, as the minister leading the Centre Review which is obviously really, really important, and the consultation's just coming to an end. But also, I think, politically, it was really significant because of the nature of his resignation. He, he was one of the ministers who'd kind of gone on air to repeat Downing Street lines about the handling of the Chris Pincher route, repeat assurances he'd been given, which then were kind of shown to be untrue. And I thought it was quite striking that he explicitly said that in his resignation letter. Um, yeah, and then Robin Walker, I think, followed shortly after. And because Michelle Donlan had shuffled up, that then meant there was three ministerial vacancies. Um, so yeah, complete chaos in the space of 12 hours. How, how did the sector react? What, what, what kind of stuff did we see? Yeah, so I think what the sector were pointing out is that at a time when there's a lot of sort of live education and schools policy issues, we've obviously got, we had SATs this week, but we've got GCSEs and A-levels coming up in August, result result days. Um, 
we've got the sort of issue of teacher pay that's not been resolved. So there's all these issues that were sort of floating around and they were saying, I think Jeff Barton, Paul Whiteman um, of, the, of the unions were saying, look, we need sort of a stability to come in place now because we need to be able to do policy essentially. And it was really quite, I suppose, especially on Wednesday when there were virtually no ministers in the DfE, there was sort of a leadership vacuum. And I think this was quite sort of difficult uh, for the sector to sort of fathom and think about what was going to what was going to happen in the in the coming weeks and months. Um, but then now we have got, I guess, relative a bit of relative stability compared to what we we had on Wednesday, right? I mean, we we do have a secretary of state. Don't Incredibly, that's that's like that's not the end of the chaos. So, you know, in our minds, we've got oh well, Nadim Zahawi and Michelle Donlan are now part of the team that Boris Johnson is intending to continue with. Um, and then in quick order, they both, well, I think Nadim Zahawi told the Prime Minister the situation was un, unsustainable, he should go, and Michelle Donlan handed a resignation in. Um, so I think she was appointed Tuesday night, resigned Thursday morning, so something to the tune of a 36-hour stint. Um, and then at that point, you're really not sure what's going to happen next, because obviously the, the bigger picture is, can Boris Johnson survive? Is he out the next day or whatever? And then because we, we get the announcement that there's going to be a third education secretary in as many days. I mean, it's, it's kind of fun for a journalist, but it's also laughable, I think. Um, and I thought it was really striking, the, um, the story you broke this morning um, from Leora Crudis, who's obviously a super influential figure in the sector representing school trusts. Do you want to talk a little bit about how, how she's responded to this situation? Yeah, so, so obviously we, we have this third education secretary, James Cleverly, has been appointed now. Uh, and I think what CST and um, the Confederation of School Trusts was saying is that they will continue to sort of engage with on live policy issues. I guess things like the schools bill, um, they'll continue to engage on that. But because this situation is quite, I guess it's sort of unprecedented in that we've got sort of a caretaker government in a way. Um, it's not been described as that sort of officially, but I think that's what we've got. Probably going to have a new government in the autumn. And I think what CST are saying is that unless there's sort of really exceptional circumstances, they're not going to engage on sort of new policy issues until there's a bit more stability and we, we have sort of a continuation in government because they, they could start engaging with an education secretary and then that education secretary switches again in the autumn. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought it was really striking because, you know, they're a body that's worked very closely with the government. They're, they're kind of, they support school trusts. Um, Obviously, there's been a big difference between the government and, and the sector over the schools bill, and I'll maybe come on to that in a second. But nevertheless, they're not someone that you characterise as a, typically like a vocal critic of the government. And I think it's quite a significant statement because it's almost coming out and sort of saying, we don't have stable governance in the country, so we can't, we can't treat this government like it's a fully-fledged proper government, basically. It's a holding one. Um, and that's slightly odds with the way that the new education secretary has talked about it because he's come out today and sort of, said that it's the government's job to govern and that therefore he can make decisions over pay. Um, and I think it's probably worth just saying a little bit about, you know, this. I think both education and the levelling up and housing department were left almost with no ministers earlier this week. And for education, this is coming at a time when the government has launched a schools bill, which has already got into difficulty, has an ongoing consultation over the Sand Green paper, which is due to finish, has got teaching unions sort of warning that they'll go on strike if they don't get a pay that reflects inflation, and school leader unions warning of a you know and a crisis that's not just impending but here on teacher recruitment. It seems incredible, really, that for such an important policy area and something that's so important for the country, 
that we had a position briefly this week where there, there was no, well, the, the risk, I think, there was no functioning government, so, so certainly not the ministers in place. Um, I, I honestly can't think of a, a time like it in the, in the time I've covered education. Um, and I guess the other thing is that there isn't even now, and I guess this is what the CST is reflecting, although there's now kind of some sort of resolution that Boris Johnson has said he'll go, the timetable for that is still a bit up in the air, and the kind of political reaction to that is still a little bit unknown. So I don't think we can kind of sort of switch off and think, well, that's this period of chaos over. There is potentially more twists and turns to come. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'll be really interesting to watch over the coming weeks. Obviously, you only got a couple of weeks of um, Parliament left as well before we go into recess. Um, and you'd think that the Conservatives would want to make clear what's going to happen before then. Um, but we're probably looking at a leadership election during the summer, I suppose, and then sort of a, a fresh start maybe from September. But yeah, it's very unclear on the on the timelines, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that strikes me is that um, even before all of this, the exam season this year was was had the potential to be really controversial because it's the first year exams have been held since the COVID pandemic started. Um, if we go back to the previous summers, particularly 2020, there was a huge fallout about the way the grading was done and the fairness of it. And that led to huge pressure on the leadership, both of Ofcall, but also the Department for Education. And I think was part of kind of a reduced credibility for Gavin Williamson at the time, which ultimately kind of, I think, led to him being reshuffled out of the post, but not straight away. It'd be really interesting if essentially you've got James Cleverly in, who's really, as you say, um, almost feels like if, if I can use a football comparison, like a caretaker manager who's been given it till the end of the season. It'd be difficult to see whether, how strongly the government can defend itself if there are criticisms that grading's been unfair and people have been not had the chance to sort of um, have a full secondary education, key stage four education, have been hard hit by COVID. If there's if there's any of that kind of fallout, and I think there might be because the grades are going to be lower than the pre last previous two years of COVID hit years where it was done to assess grades, it'd be really interesting because, you know, how, how robust will the government be able to defend itself and, and how much of a high priority will it be if a significant chunk of people in the, the Conservative Party are running for the leadership or supporting the person who is? I think it's going to be a, a really, really interesting and possibly chaotic summer, both in Westminster and in schools. I think that's absolutely right, John. I think that's a pretty perfect summary of the situation. And um, we're just going to have to watch how it goes, I guess, aren't we? So, yeah, so hopefully we're, we're done with resignations. There have been no more today. And hopefully that stays the same before this podcast goes out. We'll keep an eye on test.com and we'll keep you updated with all the news as it breaks, both in Westminster and for schools. Thanks, then. So, as you've just heard there, it's been a whirlwind week in the world of education politics. But schools were already expecting this to be a busy week as SATs results rolled in. Now, the pupils taking SATs this year were in year four when lockdowns first came into effect. So we've always expected that these results would not be ideal. These pupils have faced a lot of disruption. So how important are these SATs results and how much weight can we actually put on them going forward? Reach2 CEO Kathy Payne wrote for us this week that we should not over-focus on the importance of SATs. And I'm joined by Tess Senior Editor Gronja Hallahan to go over this story. Gronja, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, so firstly, let's set the scene a little bit. One of the interesting things that Cathy mentions early in her piece is that while the proportion of children reaching the expected standard in reading, writing and maths has fallen, the results for reading actually saw a slight increase from 2019. And she argues that 
the results speak to the different challenges involved in teaching different subjects remotely. I guess that result in itself kind of illustrates the different lens through which we're viewing the results this year, right? The pandemic tinted lens. <laughs> Very much so. So it's, you know, we've got this sort of mirror that's being held up to to the nations and how we all did with homeschooling. <laughs> like, how did everybody do? Because of course, these results, we often talk about them being the pupils' results and the teachers' results. Well, this time, definitely parents had a big hand to play in how and what and, and shaping what these results look like. And I think the um, the, con- the conclusions that people are drawing from the fact that reading didn't dip like the others did suggests that, you know, of all the things that children were able to practice and able to develop and get better at and to, you know, go over their skills, reading is one of those things that schools manage to um, deliver online materials and get things out to kids to do at home because you can read without a computer. <laughs> and you know, they, they were able to do much more with reading. And, and it's also that thing, my dad used to say this to me, if you can read, you can do any subject because it, it's that key that unlocks everything that you do. So they were practicing their reading when they were doing everything else. And a lot of the time, you know, in the classroom tasks might look different, but at home, when you're working from home and you're learning from home, a lot of that, that those tasks would have been more heavily reading based than they would be ordinarily. Does that make sense? So like, you know, kids were sent out worksheets and they read the worksheet rather than having a teacher read the worksheet to them. So they're practicing their reading skills more and more. And I'm sure, I'm certain that's part of the reason why we didn't see reading affected like the others. I mean, you know, there's others, some people will say that the reading results also down to the fact that the reading paper was a little bit easier this year. And, but that was also reflected as they changed the the, the mark on that one. So perhaps it's already been taken into account, but even so, it was a much kinder reading paper than the 2019 one. I don't think that's up for debate. Yeah. And of course, with the pandemic has also come kind of a lot of extra pressure on teachers. And I think the main point that Kathy was arguing in her article is that, you know, what's actually really important is that the teachers don't pass this extra stress onto the student. Oh, absolutely. And this is, you know, this isn't just specific to this post covid cohort it's also just timelessly true I, you make grown-ups stressed and you put lots of pressure on the, the adults in the room the children are going to feel it too so i think it's really difficult for teachers not to pass on their stresses about sats onto their pupils in fact i think i'd argue it's virtually impossible to to completely like negate any any like transfer transfer of stress the pressure that some year six teachers are under is you know, it's immeasurable, really. The stories that I hear and the the tales from the classroom of teachers being hauled in by their head teachers and interrogated over the results is, you know, it's it's quite scary. Now, the aim laid out in the white paper, of course, is that ninety percent of students leave primary school working at the expected standard in reading, writing, and maths by twenty thirty, and it's an aim which obviously now seems much harder to achieve than it already was, given the impact of the pandemic. That's certainly heaped a lot of extra pressure on teachers as well. So how do schools kind of reconcile that pressure with keeping their children supported and happy throughout the experience? Well, exactly. Until we take away these targets and until we start, until we stop measuring and pitting schools against each other, we're not going to take the pressure away, are we? And it it leads to a really anti-collegiate attitude for schools to have to take. And where is the incentive for one school to help out another school if that school's better results consequently make them look worse, you wouldn't do it, would you? You know, it's a, it's a miracle at all we get schools working together, 
And we talk about, you know, the importance of being in a strong academy of trust. And, you know, what, what we actually see is schools that are being disincentivized to share resources, to share expertise, to share, share, you know, teachers between schools, like being able to go and observe and look at best practice. The more importance we place upon league tables and the more measures we give schools to then like to draw conclusions about how well they're doing, the less likely we are to have teachers who will be able to help each other and, and to, to build a community of teaching. And I think it's a miracle. It's, it's just because teachers are kind and are by their nature want to help others. That's the great thing. When you join the teaching profession, you'll be bowled over by how much people are willing to give up their time and help fellow teachers and help each other out. But, you know, that goodwill and that, that support, I think it's fair to say that has been waning over the years. If you talk about teachers have been in the classroom for decades and decades, they'll say that, you know, it's, it's, it's petering off. Like it's, not, it's not the same as it used to be. And I'm sure it's because of this, this pressure for schools to compete against each other and, and te even teachers against other teachers, the way that we measure and we performance manage and we say that, you know, you're going to be judged by the results of your class. It's ridiculous. You should be judged by how much you develop as a teacher, how much you work on your craft, how much you, you invest your time into developing as a teacher. The results that the children get, you know, that's, that's not always within your control. Well, what is in your control is your own ability to go and do CPD, to do continuous professional development. So it, it's the argument um, that is made in the piece of against targets, I think, is an excellent one. And James Pembroke really hits the nail on the head with his, his summation of, of why they don't work. They've not worked in the past. They're not going to work in the future. The very idea that teachers are sitting down and going, right, we've got a 90% target. Which 10% are we not going to bother with? It doesn't work like that, does it? It's, it's ridiculous. Everyone's aiming for 100% of all of their kids who take those exams, take those tests to reach the expected standard. That's the point. That's what we teach them for. So the targets aren't helping. They're not adding to, the, to, the, to what schools can do. And it's a measure that could be taken away. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that goodwill of teachers is tested quite often, isn't it? And it comes with things like, you know, with pay and budget as well. And of course, like you said, the teachers are always going to aim to get 100% of their, their students achieving. So what, what, almost what is the point here? Because it, it could leave them, and I doubt any teachers would do this, but, but making like an analytical decision to see which student they can, they can leave behind to meet that 90% is, is kind of ridiculous. Exactly. We shouldn't be writing off any children and we shouldn't be encouraging schools by giving them targets to even start thinking that way. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, both, uh, both the articles we've mentioned today, great articles if you, if you want to look more into this, both available as always on our website, des.com forward slash magazine. Bronya, thank you again for, for joining me today.